the ups and downs over the years of thinking I had it solved only to find the guy that I zeroed in on was eliminated and not the guy I was looking for. It was obvious that, you know, the primary person was the Golden State Killer and the primary person was Joe D'Angelo. That was what I knew, you know, for sure. After 24 years, you know, got him, got him, got him, got him. I'm Nicola Talent, and you're listening to Crime World, a podcast about criminals, drugs, and the sins of the underworld in Ireland and across the globe. Retired detective Paul Holes knows just what it's like to immerse himself in a good murder mystery. And it was his work on the Golden State Killer which led to the 2018 arrest and conviction of serial killer Joseph James D'Angelo Jr., responsible for at least 10 murders and 50 sexual assaults. The case had first come across Hole's desk in 1994 when he, as a young detective, dusted down the files of the so-called East Area Rapist, which he later linked to Southern California's unidentified original Night Stalker. But it wasn't until his retirement that the dots finally joined and dogged DNA and genetics work solved the mystery thrusting holes into the headlines and turning him into a podcast and TV star. The detective is just one of many crime profilers, investigators, historians and journalists due to gather this weekend at CrimeCon in London, where we will also be mingling and bringing you some stories from the great and good of true crime. Today, we talk to Holes about his career and the extraordinary case of the serial killer he finally caught. Crime World researcher Claude Amini is going to do the questioning because, well, she's a big fan of the case and the detective who solved it. This is Crime World, a podcast from sundayworld.com. you have a very kind of broad understanding of of kind of science and the forensic side of, of policing when you started your career. So tell us, you joined law enforcement in 1994, you find a cold case file. Right. Of who's known at the time as the East Area Rapist. Yes. In fact, I started uh, back in 1990 and I started as a civilian forensic scientist and then I uh, became a deputy sheriff criminalist, which was a sworn forensic scientist that also went out in the field to do crime scene investigation as well as working in the lab. And and that was in 1994. And that's when I found in a file cabinet nobody ever looked at. I opened up a drawer and there's these files marked with a red EAR. And uh, as I opened up each file, I was reading uh, case files of a serial rapist. And he obviously was a very unusual serial rapist based on what he was doing to his victims. Um, and I s- soon learned that that EAR stood for East Area Rapist. And he had a connection up to Sacramento attacks prior to coming down into the Bay Area, California. And you soon connected that he wasn't just the East Area Rapist. There was, there was more to it. Uh, there's, uh, yeah, it turns out there was a lot more. Uh, you know, it, it took me seven years uh, and finally using modern DNA, uh, 
to a point uh, in 2001, uh, we ended up doing a DNA match to a series, unsolved series of homicides in Southern California, where the offender down there was known as the original Night Stalker. And that DNA match showed that these terror rapists and the original Night Stalker were one and the same person. And were you expecting, when you went into that, were you expecting to find more than that? Or what, what were you expecting when you started investigating the case? No, I, to be frank, was looking at this case as, uh, well, let's see if I could identify who this unknown East Area Rapist was. And the cases, at least at that time, were believed to be past their statute of limitations. So even if I could identify the East Area Rapist, he wouldn't have been subjected to prosecution. But then once we linked to the homicides, now the, the you know, the whole, you uh, game plan changed because homicides in, here in the United States and California have an unlimited statute. Uh, so you can always be prosecuted no ma- matter lo- how long after the crime. And so I basically moved into a support role, stunned that this, what I considered a hobby case that I, that I started on, all of a sudden blossomed into, this guy's a serial killer. He's not just a serial rapist, he's a serial killer. And I supported the homicide investigators down south, uh, thinking it's just a matter of time and they're going to catch this guy because now they have 50 attacks up in Northern California with all that information and they have their case files on the homicide cases. Should be easy. And at what point was it that he was connected from, you know, he went from just being a serial rapist to being a serial killer? Well, that was in uh, late 1979. Uh, and he moved, he disappeared out of Northern California. And then unbeknownst to us, he, he popped up in Santa Barbara and he had one attack, which was, uh, identical to what he was doing up North and it went sideways. But in that very first attack in Santa Barbara, uh, the, uh, female victim heard him pacing back and forth saying, I'm going to kill him. I'm going to kill him this time. I'm going to kill him. And he's like, he's psyching himself up to take that next step in the evolution to become a killer. He ends up being chased by an off-duty FBI agent uh, at the end of that case. And then two months later, he shows up in a nearby neighborhood from that first attack down in Santa Barbara and kills the couple, shoots the, the man and the woman. It was a, the man tried to attack him. The male victim tried to go after him and, and uh, sort of in self-defense, if you will, uh, the uh, East Era rapist, original Night Stalker, ends up shooting that man and then goes over and shoots the bound woman in the top of the head and runs off. And then three months after that, he's down in Ventura, which is about an, an hour drive south. And that's where he, what I've called his opus, where he completes an attack, uh, sexually assaults the woman and um, while the, the husband is bound and then bludgeons the couple to death in their bed. This is what he really wanted to do. And then from that point on, that's what he does is he bludgeons his victims. So he had a very kind of... Uh, straightforward, uh, you know, patterned MO, would you say? His, his MO was very distinctive. Uh, and, you know, that's how way back when the original investigators without DNA and without any, you know, latent prints uh, matching up, you know, the MO is how they were linking these attacks. And, uh, you know, when he moved down south, uh, you know, the first attack was 
identical to what was going on up north. There just wasn't agency cooperation. And so that's where the investigation up north just literally stalled. Um, but then after he starts killing, uh, you know, the victims aren't alive in order to be basically pass on some of the details of his MO. And the Southern California authorities were, didn't know anything about East Area Rapist. Uh, you know, that was just an unsolved case up in Northern California. And they, they weren't even thinking about, you know, our offender came from up north. They were looking at a serial killer that just rose out of their own midst. And then for you, I guess, when you, when you started investigating this case, uh, you spent your career looking into it. What, what was that experience like? What was it like looking at you know, a frustrating case? It's just you have so much there, yeah. but you're not getting anywhere with it. Yeah, you know, that, it, that was really the, the challenge. I spent 24 years on this case. And I thought, of course, that you know, my, my claim to fame on the case was going to be linking the Northern California attacks to the Southern California homicides. Um, and then when the case still was unsolved, that's when the last almost 10 years of my career I just, you know, rolled up my sleeves and decided to go full bore on it as opposed to really kind of working from from the laboratory st- standpoint. And, you know, the the ups and downs over the years of thinking I had it solved only to find the guy that I zeroed in on was eliminated and not the guy I was looking for, you know, one guy I spent 2 years thinking he was uh, the the East Area rapist and um you know, when we found him, he was eliminated. And I was just thinking, I just spent two years of my life. What am I doing? You know, and I even had a boss tell me he's dead, Paul, <laughs> you know, stop, <laughs> stop working. He, it's a, it's a, it's a waste of your time, you know, but I really not only was obsessed, but after, you know, meeting with victims, uh, and loved ones of victims from the homicide cases, you know, I se- I felt a sense of obligation and I just kept on it. And, you know, fortunately, you know, uh, technology advanced to a point where we were finally able to solve the case. So tell us then, obviously, like you were, when you were working on this case, you were obviously employed as a police officer. You had other things to be doing as well. So you were, you looked at a lot of other fascinating cases throughout your career, but this is the one that's kind of really stood out. Um, even in Ireland, you know, it's one that's, that's so well known. Um, tell us about the day of your retirement, because I feel like that's a huge, you know, part of this case. And it, I can imagine it was a very special day for you in a way. Well, you know, it, it, it really was, you know, in retrospect, it, it turned out that was a very, could have been a very bad day for me. Um, you know, this is where I was approaching retirement and uh, using the genealogy tool, you know, the genetic genealogy, uh, we had uh, focused in on this Joseph D'Angelo, who was a former law enforcement officer. And was living up in Citrus Heights, which is uh, in the kind of northeast area of Sacramento. And uh, I always, you know, at this point, I'm thinking, well, he's he's got some interesting uh, aspects to him circumstantially to think he could be what was now known as the Golden State Killer. Um, and so for me, he was like, okay, I need to go see this guy. I need to go, you know, see where he's living. What what car is he driving? You know, uh, and I, Monday afternoon, uh, the day before I was to turn in my badge and gun, 
I drove up to Citrus Heights, which was about an hour and a half drive from my office in uh, Contra Costa County, the Bay Area, California. And I parked in front of his house and I could tell he was home. Um, and I couldn't see him. His uh, window blinds were, were closed. And I kind of backed my car up. I was across the street on the curb and I backed my car up just to see if I could see into the backyard. And I sat there and I thought, you know, what's the likelihood? Yeah, this is really the, the Golden State killer. And I had my doubts. Uh, you know, how, how could a full-time law enforcement officer commit all these attacks, you know, uh, back, back in the day? And uh, then I started thinking, you know what, I should just go knock on the door and introduce myself. And, you know, he's a former law enforcement guy. So just say, hey, you got to understand, you know, this, your name came up, you know, in the investigation and we can just settle this. Just give me an oral swab for your DNA and I'll eliminate you and nobody will bother you again. You know, but as I sat there in the car, you know, I kind of hem and hawed and, and decided, you know, there's just enough where I'm not sure he could be the guy. And I decided, you know what, I'm not going to blow this. And I put my uh, car in drive and I drove home. And that literally was the last thing I did. But we didn't find out for sure he was a Golden State killer for three more weeks. So, so that I, was very like a sliding doors moment nearly that things could have done so differently. Yeah, well, you know, he um, obviously uh, has no reservations about killing people. He's very proficient with firearms. In fact, when I ran him the week prior in California's uh, firearms registry, you know, it basically it, it, it tells, you know, how many registered guns a particular person has. He had more guns than what the uh, the computer was willing to print out from that database. And I would have to call wow. in to get a, a larger list. Um, longer list. And, you know, he, in his history, you know, back in uh, Visalia, back in 1975, he shot a cop, you know, when the cop cornered him. So I've had, after D'Angelo was sentenced, and we were kind of in a group, small group, um, talking, you know, my, my bud from the FBI, Steve Kramer, said, Paul, if you had knocked on that door, he would have shot you, pulled your body into his house and gone out and pulled your car into his garage and you would have just disappeared. And I was like, yeah, you're right. You know, and when I told my wife what I did, she, she didn't know I had gone up to D'Angelo's house. I mean, she was livid at me. <laughs> <laughs> wow, that could have been so different. So three weeks later, you found out who he was, that, that it, you know, you were on the right track. How did that happen? How did that come about? Well, you know, we, based on the, 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 the genealogy, you know, we knew he minimally was related to the Golden State Killer. But then, you know, circumstantial evidence, you know, he had, uh, he was working as a cop at, down in Exeter, right outside Visalia, when he was the Visalia, you know, we had the Visalia Ransacker series and a homicide down there. And he had purchased a gun down in a nearby uh town near Visalia. So he had that connection at the time those cases were going on. He had very, very strong connection to the Sacramento area uh, from prior to, you know, cases. He grew up there after a certain point. Uh, he worked up in Auburn as a cop. Um, and then, you know, just the 
information. He, you know, he ultimately was fired as a cop for shoplifting a dog repellent and a hammer up in Citrus Heights. To, to, to mm-hmm. uh, 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 of irony, the irony of that. But uh, you know, I talked to the police chief that fired him, and the police chief relayed a story that when they were terminating D'Angelo, you know, D'Angelo's on admin leave; he's not coming into the office. Um, in the middle of the night, this police chief's daughter comes into the room and says, you know, daddy, there's a man standing outside my bedroom window, shining a flashlight in. And the police chief, you know, gets up and runs outside and doesn't see anybody. But he tells me, Paul, I know that was D'Angelo. And I'm like, yeah, that's exactly what the Golden State Killer would do, you know, if somebody, if he was going through a termination process. So, you know, that really caused us to go, okay, you know, he's interesting. Uh, we need to get a direct sample from him. Sack Sheriff's Office and the FBI surveyed him. And then at one point, uh, when he went to, D'Angelo went to Hobby Lobby, which is, you know, hobby store over here. He, he, he had this uh, hobby of building these balsa wood remote control planes. And uh, he goes to Hobby Lobby and an undercover agent comes up and swabs his car door handle uh, out in the parking lot. And the DNA results come back. And uh, though it was a mixed sample, uh, it was obvious that, you know, the primary person was the Golden State Killer, and the primary person was Joe D'Angelo. So that was when I knew, you know, for sure, after 24 years, you know, got him. And uh, we had to get a second sample, which was done by a trash grab and a a, a Kleenex tissue, came back 100% to the Golden State Killer, and then that's when uh, D'Angelo was arrested. So tell us then how... It kind of we don't we don't have genetic genealogy here in Ireland in on the scale that you have it in the US for sure. I mean they're they're trying to use it to solve a small case out in Kerry, but it's like uh, you know they're going to do a door to door kind of community thing rather than using a database. So just for our listeners, can you explain a little bit about what genetic genealogy is and how that kind of led you to Joseph D'Angelo? Yeah, so genetic genealogy. Um you know, first you have to produce a DNA profile of your offender, the person you're looking for. And, uh, you know, like with Golden State Killer, he had left DNA behind uh, in his cases. So taking a DNA sample, uh, initially it's getting this special DNA type profile. It's not the law enforcement style profile, which is called STRs, but you have to get this uh, DNA profile, which is, as an acronym, SNPs, single nucleotide polymorphisms. And this is exactly the type of profile that Ancestry.com and 23andMe and all those companies use in order to link relatives together in their databases. So once that profile is is generated, then you know a, a query of the databases is done in order to generate a list of individuals that share a percentage of their DNA with the person you're looking for. So that is the DNA side of this that of side of this this technology, and and just from you know, of course, there's a lot of privacy issues that people are concerned about. 
I have to really emphasize that I, as a law enforcement officer doing this process, never had access to anybody's genetic information in these databases. To do that, I have to download their DNA profile. I'm no different than a typical user of Ancestry.com, where now you're getting, you know, the email saying, oh, we found a third cousin, you know. All it does is it gives me this, this ranked list saying, oh, I've got, you know, 10 third cousins of the Golden State Killer. At this point, it is pure genealogy work. Anybody could do this uh, where you just start building family trees of the people in the list. And I can't build a family tree of Golden State Killer. I don't know who he's related to. But the purpose of building these trees is to find at least two people on that list where you can say these two people share these common ancestors back in time. And in our case, we found... Uh, from a third cousin, a second cousin of, of the Golden State Killer, we found great-great-grandparents that those two people shared. And theoretically, uh, the Golden State Killer also shares those great-great-grandparents. So once you get those common ancestors, now you build their family tree up to the present time. And you have to identify all descendants. Um, and this is not easy because you think about people back, you know, in the, the mid 1800s, you know, they'd have 15 kids, you know, and, and five of them would not, you know, make it to childbearing age. Uh, records are scant, um, you know, so it is a, a, a difficult process and time consuming process. But once you get into, you know, on the family tree, into the, um, date range that you think your offender is born in. And for Golden State Killer, we pegged him as being born between 1940 and 1960. Uh, then he's, we start taking a look at the various people. And it's this is just now investigation 101. You know, who on this list adds up to, you know, being, you know, circumstantially uh, the person that we need to go get a direct sample from. And, you know, uh, we ended up having a, sh a short list at our in Golden State Killer of roughly you know, five to eight men. Um, I, I forget exactly how many. And then, you know, we ultimately, you know, were able to eliminate them circumstantially or one guy that I was really high on. Uh, the, the one sample that we got during this process was from this, this, this man's sister, who happened to live near, uh, uh, down in Southern California. And she was asked if she'd be willing to provide a sample, and, and she was. And we could show that she wasn't the sister of the Golden State Killer, thus eliminating her brother, but she was closer related to the Golden State Killer than anybody in the database. So we knew the family tree building had worked. And then ultimately, you know, D'Angelo was the, you know, the next guy up. If we could, if it wasn't, if it wasn't D'Angelo, we could have continued to, you know, build trees. But D'Angelo added up once we've got that direct sample, then it was like, we knew, you know. And so that's really, you know, how the process works. And, you know, another point that I like to make is in an investigation like the Golden State Killer, we got DNA samples from hundreds upon hundreds of men. And because their name came up in the investigation, an ex-girlfriend, ex-wife said, hey, this guy I used to date or I was married to is a bad guy. Kind of looks like the composite generator from the 1970s. And now that, that guy is getting a knock on the door. Now, I, as a member of the government, possess that man's DNA sample because somebody else pointed at him. Um, and 
using this process, you know, I, I mentioned just one person, we, we got a, a voluntary sample of DNA, but this process saved hundreds of more men from having their DNA being, you know, basically taken by the government. And so that's something that people need to think of is, I mean, this really is, uh, you know, we don't access genetic information of the people in the database and it saves, it exonerates. Of course, we find the right guy, but it also saves so many people in this type of investigation, you know, from their DNA, you know, being the government possessing it. So that's just, you know, that's just part of what I want to throw out there. If, if your legislators are, you know, considering, you know, whether or not they want to, you know, maybe expand the use of, of uh, uh, I like to use the term investigative genealogy because gen- I don't think mm-hmm. genetics is right, but, you know, we've kind of formalized onto forensic genetic genealogy over here in the United, United States. And I just, I don't like that term. But it really, that's, that's really what the process is in a nutshell. And it's, it's been revolutionary for us over here, you know, over well over a hundred of the most horrific cases that were completely unsolvable before. Now we've got these guys, you know, off the street, families have answers, you know, and, and it's, it's really been awesome. Yes. Yeah. And at the end of the day, if you don't want the government to access your DNA, just don't murder anyone. Don't commit any crimes. You know? Very, very (laughs) true. Very true. (laughs) So how did the... How did the case end up, you know, the Golden State Killer case end up going into that kind of process of genetic genealogy? Because it is often, you know, anytime anyone mentions genetic genealogy, it's always a reference point. Was that the first one? It was. Yeah. So you can, you obviously came up with that idea from your background in forensic science. That you most certainly, you know, that was something it was it was something that uh, evolved because. I initially started doing a genealogy process in in 2012. Um, And, you know, this is because, you know, the DNA that we had done on the law enforcement side, you know, it's it's up in the FBI's CODIS system. That's the FBI's DNA database. Hadn't hit after years. You know, it had been up there since 2001. And now over a decade later, we still didn't get an answer. And that type of law enforcement database is predicated upon the repeat offender. You know, there's a reason why the offender's DNA has been collected directly from them. And it's also, you know, the crime scene samples. Uh, and if your offender's DNA, if he never commits a crime, that he's caught for to get a DNA sample from him, then he's never going to hit into the CODIS system. Um, so you have to have that offender have a reason to have his sample collected. The genealogy, the reason I went to genealogy is like, well, I'm dealing with somebody who hasn't committed a crime to the point where they got their DNA collected or just you know, has been an oversight, which happens. And that's where, well, maybe there's a relative out there. There's, and that's when I found, you know, a, a genealogy tool uh, based on the male uh, chromosome, this YSTR chromosome that genealogists were using. And so I was searching this, hoping to find, uh, you know, maybe uh, an idea about the the ancestry of the offender I'm looking for, the uh, surname, because in our culture, you know, the uh, men in the, the paternal side of the lineage usually keep their, their, their same name. So I'm thinking, well, maybe I can figure out the Golden State Killer's last name. It gives me a, you know, definitely a, a, a start. Um, and that 
I just kept striking out using that. And then coincidentally, I had another case that I was involved with in which a young girl, six-year-old girl from years prior had been, you know, abducted, but we didn't know who she was. And we tried to identify her using traditional law enforcement um, techniques and couldn't do it. And then a, 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 a partner of mine from Southern California you know, he, I'm on a conference call for this other case. And he said, well, we have finally identified this little girl. And she turns out she was abducted from New Hampshire, which is on the other side of the United States from California. And it was like, how did you do that? You know, and that's when he told me he used a website called dnaadoption.com. And this is where adoptees who want to find their biological parents, you know, the genealogists work with their DNA and look and do this genealogy technique. And that's when I, uh, you know, uh, called up the genetic genealogist, Barbara Ray Venter, and I asked, can an unknown offender be identified using this technique? And she was like, I see no reason why it couldn't. And then that's really how we got onto it. You know, I reached out to Barbara and then uh, my FBI partner, Steve Kramer, that's the first time he called me. You know, he said, hey, I hear what you're doing. I believe in it. How can I help? So Steve Kramer and I literally paired up and did the deep dive to learn how this tool is used because Barbara stopped communicating. She it turns out she had a, a major health issue. And so we were kind of left to our own devices and I'm watching YouTube videos and reading websites on you know you know how this you know genealogy tool worked I even used my parents DNA uploaded it into a website called Gedmatch and you know was able to figure out you know using my dad's DNA how I could you know from relatives off that list you know show that my dad is related to these relatives and you know through the the family trees and stuff so we became sold. This was the way to solve the case. And that's that's where we put our focus uh, from that point on. And uh, it turned out to be correct. Absolutely, because it's it's gone on to not only solve a lot of cases, but give families closure and even bring them loved ones, you know, unidentified people back to their to their families once and for all. So tell us a little bit then, you've got a new book coming out. It's called Unmasked. It's obviously a huge deep dive into your career and all the fascinating cases that you've worked on. Yeah. You know, the, this book, well, it, it evolved uh, from what I initially thought the book would be. And after D'Angelo was caught, I sat down thinking, okay, I need to write a book on, you know, the really doing a deep dive on the investigation of the Golden State Killer series from, you know, my perspective and what I was had been doing over the years, thinking that that's what people would really want to, to know. And there is a, a segment of the population that wants to know all that. But then as, uh, you know, we brought a collaborator on board to help me write the book, Robin Gabby Fisher, and she's getting to know me and I'm telling her about my career in the other cases I was involved with. And, you know, she's going, oh my God, you know, that's, fascinating. And I said, well, I know. I, I was thinking that potentially, you know, I've got an unusual career that potentially maybe future books. And she goes, no, 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 we got to you know, put this together. But also as I'm talking to Robin and then the publishers on board, you know, some of the emotional aspects of, you know, that I experienced during the course of my career, it was obvious, you know, I'd be choking up as I'm talking about certain things. And um, that's when they said, Paul, we really need to, to express who you are 
uh, you know, and, and I'm a very private person, so I was hesitant, but as I thought about it, because I know, you know, as I've gotten older, you know, I, I had an experience in which the book opens up and where I'm just an emotional wreck. I just cratered. Um, and it was after I retired and I ended up going to see a therapist and basically she's pointing out, you know, the trauma somebody like myself experiences as they work these, these horrific cases. Um, and then I, I realized, you know, this is a fundamental purpose of this book. You know, of course, it's to talk about Golden State Killer and provide the readers information they've never heard before about that investigation. Uh, it's other cases I've been involved with, uh, some high profile over here, such as Lacey Peterson and J.C. Dugard, and the roles that I played in those cases, as well as other cases that most people would never have heard of, but they are fascinating stories um, and, but throughout my career, I had, you know, issues and relationships and, uh, you know, just, you know, some of the, you know, trauma that I was experiencing at the time that I was just, you know, kept blocking. I, I would not, uh, allow myself to really express that you can't, you know, you'd be seen as weak. Um, and so now it, you know, a fundamental purpose of the book is really to say, Hey, here, this is what I was exposed to. This is, this is something that I hope the readers will understand, you know, they're, they're, they're consuming true crime content, but myself and other professionals, you know, this is real crime and, you know, uh, we're human and experiencing real crime is very different than watching a TV show or being an online sleuth from uh, behind a keyboard, you know? And so that's, that's really a, a fundamental purpose of this book and, and hope that it helps other people. If there are, you know, maybe they're a homicide investigator and, and, you know, they're, they're kind of going, God, this is really getting to me, you know, to have the courage to go talk to somebody, or if there's a spouse of somebody who's a professional, you know, maybe better understand why that, that, uh, person is, uh, isolating themselves or drinking too much. You know, there's just so many ways that people deal with, you know, the after effects of, of dealing with these types of cases. So it's unmasked, not only the killers and the perpetrators, but a bit of you as well. Very, very w good. Yes. That, that, that <laughs> title is purposeful. It's, it's, you okay. Know, un, 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 unmasked, of course, was the unmasking of D'Angelo, but it, it it does have that that dual meaning of uh, it's unmasking of me. You know, so people, for better or worse, will learn more about who I am. Yeah, brilliant. And you're also going to be like ourselves at CrimeCon in London in June. I am. Uh, what can people expect from you? You're one of their big speakers. What what is what is your topic going to be? Well, you know, I'm going to be uh, involved in, in multiple discussions, but of course, you know, the, the, the main one that I'm going to be talking about is going to be a deep dive into the Golden State Killer case. Uh, this will be the first time that I'm, uh, first time I'm ever over in London, and, and uh, oh, but this, will be, this will be the first time, you know, uh, one of us active investigators from the Golden State Killer case will be overseas to really, you know, present the case like you've never heard it before. And uh, so that's um, going to be my primary mission. But of course, I'm, I'm hoping to be able to, you know, meet the various people who, uh, you know, are fans and have seen me, you know, or listen to the podcast or, you know, want to read the book. And then I'll be on some um, panel discussions uh, as well. 
and, uh, you know, talking, you know, to some of the, um, investigators and experts over there and in, in some ways, possibly even comparing and contrasting, you know, American, uh, law enforcement versus, you know, versus what happens over there. Brilliant. Paul Hose, thank you so much for joining us. Oh, it's been such a pleasure. Thank you. You've been listening to Crime World, a podcast from sundayworld.com. Produced by Ian Mullaney and edited by me, Nicola Talent. If you like the podcast and love true crime, why not download the sundayworld.com app for lots more stories from Ireland and across the globe. 